produced by Podcast Architects. Howdy, welcome back to The Path Forward. I am your co-host for today, Ben Wiggins, and I'm here with your host, Dr. Rick Fernandez. Rick, what's going on, man? Oh, this is an exciting day for me. It's an exciting day. I've been waiting, chomping at the bit to get Lee Bratcher on. Lee's our, our uh, founder of the Texas Blockchain Council and something that I've been interested in for about a year now. So I am super excited to have him. And I needed a co-host, so. This is a super exciting space for me as well. And I can't wait to have a conversation with Lee about where it's going, what it's doing, and where the, you know, where the value lies long-term. Because everybody keeps talking about it, you know, like how valuable it is. And I'm starting to see some of it, some of the applications, but uh, your thoughts. You know, the technology piece is really what I'm after because that is something where I have to put into the hands of kids, K-12, college kids, because the technology is not going away. It's only exploding. Uh, and therefore, it's going to impact our lives. So if kids can do those things, if they understand it, if they can do the work, there's jobs for them. So it perfectly merges with our innovation and education discussion. So I'm excited to be here and excited to have you. We're going to split this episode into two parts. And so you'll hear part one now, and then we'll do a little transition at the end. And then you, you can come back and join us for part two, which we will release separately. Looking forward to it. Let's roll. Let's do it. Well, I'm super excited. Uh, this is probably the, the episode I've been looking forward to the most to introduce our guest and spend some time with Lee Bratcher, the founder of the Texas Blockchain Council. So Lee, welcome. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about the conversation today. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get into blockchain? How did you uh, come to the point where, hey, I, I know that this is the wave of the future and we Texas as a state has to jump on it? It was about six years ago. I was uh, a new, newly minted political science professor at Dallas Baptist University. I was also in the Army Reserve, so I was up at the Army War College doing some, um, you know, research on blockchain and property rights, and really, actually, not blockchain, just property rights as a tool for conflict mitigation. Right. So if you have secure property rights and, and rule of law, there's a lot of data that suggests that that conflict is less likely in those kinds of scenarios. Coase's theorem type of stuff. Very, exactly. Uh, Ronald Coase, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, bringing me back uh, to the political science world. So I did that, um, you know, and, and while I was there, I discovered blockchain. And as a, as a tool for enabling um, the world's poor to have greater access to their their real property through whether it's collateral as an author named Hernando de Soto, not to go too academic again, but he wrote mystery of capital and estimated that there's $9 trillion worth of real estate that's owned by the world's poor that they have uh, inadequate or non-existent title to. So they don't ever invest in it. It's chronically underinvested. They, they don't uh, use it as collateral for small business loans. It's always underperforming mm -hmm. and you know, maintaining that, that cycle of poverty, that land's been in the family for generations, but they're afraid to invest in it because they think if they do, then the warlord or the power broker of that region will come and take it. Um, so that's how I got introduced to blockchain technology, you know, and, and through most people get introduced through crypto, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was property rights, uh, political science, blockchain, understanding governance and, and rule of law. And then I got introduced to crypto through through all that. So from there, I, I read the Bitcoin white paper and uh, got into crypto afterwards, which is sort of a backward story. 
Yeah. So you came about it kind of a roundabout way. Um, when did you know that the crypto, the Bitcoin space was, okay, this is here to stay and we need to start looking at how we leverage this as a state? It's probably just over two years ago when I really realized that the crypto industry has some sharp edges and uh, challenges with narratives communicating to the traditional power brokers or traditional, um, you know, elite finance. And, and, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so th there, there was all these narratives going around in the media that I realized were not necessarily true. They were uh, distorting um, what the technology could do for society and for communities. And so um, I decided, one, I knew this was going to be the future. I, I knew that uh, this technology, th this invention that, that was first published in the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper would be as impactful for our world uh, as the Internet, which is a very bold claim. Right. And, and you guys have heard this before. Right. Blockchain will do for the transfer of value what the Internet did for the transfer yes. of information. So uh, from that perspective, I thought, where can I plug in? Because I'm not a programmer, developer. You know, I don't have that computer science background. Mm -hmm. uh, I know enough to be dangerous, but let's probably not go there for today. Mm -hmm. uh, I know enough about the the tokenomics and the you know, e economics piece. Right. There's almost a philosophical underpinning of blockchain. Right? I've, I've noticed that as I read different white papers, everybody does it a little bit differently. And based on your belief system of who controls the tokens, it's kind of where you land um, on your favorites. It's kind of what I understand it as. Exactly. It's very interdisciplinary, right? You've got philosophy, economics, computer science, political science with the governance mechanisms. So, so uh, fascinated with the technology. I knew it was going to be the future. And my place to plug in was to help build uh, a, an ecosystem that generated um, an environment where entrepreneurs and venture capital would come to Texas. The regulatory climate here was where what we needed it to be for that to happen. Um, and to part of its marketing too, right? Sure. You, know, you could create the best regulatory environment known to man, but if nobody knows about it, though, those entrepreneurs and that venture capital money will stay where it's at. Um, so we do, a, we do a, all of those things. Briefly where the conversation started was all of this, sort of uncaptured value in real estate, for example. And anytime we start talking about numbers that start with a T, especially as relates to how we can help disadvantaged communities, that's really compelling to me. What is, uh, how does blockchain help solve that specific problem? And what's to stop the warlord from saying, hey, that's, you know, this is all nice, but in the end, if you don't give me the property, I'm going to shoot you in the head. Like what? T tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, the, the blockchain is not a panacea and certainly can't solve the, uh, the physical threat issue. Uh, so there's two ways. One is in the, the ledger piece, right? Because ledgers are, you know, blockchain is sort of the next iteration on double account, double accounting, which has been around since uh, the 1500s. Luca Pacioli develops that as a way for traders in the Renaissance period to trade. Um, without having to trust or know the counterparty. Mm. Um, and so with the ledgers in real estate and developing world, a lot of times they're so centralized that the wealthy and powerful can go to the land office and change names on deeds and titles. Wow. And um, you, you really don't, it's not a setting for the free market to create wealth. Right. Right. That's a setting for corruption and for uh, sort of a, a disastrous outcome. 
And so that's one way is through more accurate ledgers, which does not fix the garbage in, garbage out problem that has always plagued anything with data. Um, so the, and the other piece is uh, around, and, and this is more for probably the developed world first, and, and hopefully this gets to the developing world. Well, I may take that back. The developing world is, is adopting crypto faster than developed world. Hmm. Like Vietnam That's and true. Nigeria, these countries have a higher per capita adoption rate than, than most countries in the West. Um, but the other area is, is tokenization and liquidity and fractionalization. I'll, I'll say fractionalization. So currently, real estate is, is notoriously illiquid. Yes. There's an there's an illiquidity discount that is applied. You could sell this property for more if it was liquid. Or, you know, you could uh, change out LPs more quickly if this was a, a liquid, you know, a traditional LP GP structure where there's, you know, a fund and they own commercial property or, or residential, whatever. Uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of friction and there's not a lot of liquidity. You lock up capital for a long time. Yeah. So um, on the tokenization piece, imagine if it was a digitized blockchain enabled cap table and, you know, investors um, could say if there was a, if there's a thousand tokens and you own 10 of those tokens, you own 1% of this, 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 uh, you know, portfolio and all the LPs can um, either buy more tokens to, to increase their ownership stake, sell a few tokens if they need a liquidity event, sell all their, their tokens if they need. And these tokens can trade with public market liquidity in private markets, which is pretty revolutionary for real estate, right? And, and really all private equity. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and it plagues private equity in general. There's an illiquidity discount in anything that's not a public a public market because in public markets, you have, you have so many um, exchanges that are matching buyers and sellers. There's, there's counterparties out there that are ready to take the other end of that trade at a second's notice. Mm -hmm. But in the private equity markets, none of that exists. It's all um, slow moving, handshake. You got to know somebody that knows right. somebody. You got to bring in the right amount of investors to, to cover the investors that are wanting a liquidity event. I mean, it's very complicated. And because of that, you're going to devalue that asset relative to what it could be valued at if it was trading in public markets. Essentially, you're saying the hassle of it becomes more so it, it, it's less value because I can go trade this out instantaneously. There's more value to that for me to put any asset or money or whatever it may be into this versus this. It's going to be a hassle to get it out of. A hundred percent. And you might even have less attorney's fees. Yeah. You'd have less. all the handling that goes in between trying to get it out of this, this hassle laden type of project, which is real estate. Exactly. So let me play devil's advocate for a moment. So public stock trading for any of the three of us is a straightforward process because, and, and the, the market is set up to make it that way for us because as non-institutional investors, we can't move the price and we also can't really move, I mean, maybe for some companies we could, but we can't move anything with respect to like leadership of the company, what the company is going to do. We're just kind of along for the ride, so to speak. And if that now, once that changes, if you're looking at a Berkshire Hathaway or something like that, they can buy enough of a company to where there's a lot of additional steps that they have to take. There becomes more friction for them. And also the price moves when they want to buy. Right. So is, are we, 
we're create we're we're pushing this toward you know what as you say a kind of a public stock model for something like real estate but if is my argument is and not, not maybe not an argument but my question is does some of that friction exist because in private when we're talking about a piece of land for example what gets done with that piece of land there's actually an incentive to add some friction to that process because otherwise like you know that the investment in that land could just be changing directions every five minutes sure does it does that question make sense yeah it does and, and i think one of the things that we have to think about is information asymmetries right sure some investors have more information about the market than others yes um, and and that speaks a little bit to your question doesn't fully answer it but most of these you know early stage things are going to be accredited investors only uh, and so these accredited investors you know they're they're going to go through all the regulated securities offerings that you know, the SEC requires of them. Sure. Now, when you open that up to sort of a crowdsourced, you know, anybody can invest, uh, then you have a lot more disclosure. That obviously there's a, there's a higher regulatory burden on the person issuing those securities. Um, so, in answers your your question about the direction of that investment. Mm -hmm there will have to be enough like the, the gp the general partner will probably have to bring in uh, and educate the investors sufficiently such that you know investor that comes in doesn't change the direction of that asset and what's it what the producing the production value of that asset such that if they do then they're risking their own capital right they they're incentivized to come in and stay aligned if they think it's a you know, a good path and stay aligned with the path forward. Mm. So they get the highest appreciative appreciation on their capital. Now, if they're like an activist investor, like you see in the public market, sometimes, well, that's sort of the free market at work, right? Maybe the real estate is being is under uh, performing. Uh, maybe it has like light manufacturing on it when it should be high tech manufacturing or vice versa, depending on the job market or the, the geography. So that activist investor can come in in a private market just like they would in a public market. Mm -hmm. um, so there does need to be guardrails there because, uh, you know, an unrestrained free market is a little dangerous. Uh, you know, I'm an Austrian economist like the rest of the, you know, or majority of the crypto audience, but I'm not like a von Mises, like total anarchy, uh, the free market can do no wrong type person. Right? I'm a big <laughs> advocate of the free market, but right. you do need to have some guardrail somewhere. Like, yeah, I mean, roads. Yeah. <laughs> if we were going to talk about blockchain and for someone that didn't know anything about it, well, let's do it this way. Ben, what was your undergrad GPA? Are you allowed to say that out, out loud? Uh, are you still, are you still, you haven't told your parents exactly what it is? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. I don't know. I think I I I think I got a three six. Oh, oh well, then you need to be telling me then because I was a solid two seven ish right there. <laughs> um, but you know, uh, so for for the layperson, if you wanted to explain what is blockchain technology, how do you explain that, or how does how does somebody like me go and explain? If explain like I'm an Aggie. Oh, oh, oh there we go. There, hey, D Maze, did you hear that? <laughs> Fired, canceled right there. Right. D's get degrees, right? That, that's right. 
That's right. What do they call the, the doctor that made the lowest grade in the class? A doctor. Doctor, <laughs> right. So. And, and the people that get D's at the Mays Business School probably are making pretty good money as sales. You know, there's just the, this business development piece where, hey, maybe you didn't spend a lot of time on, you know, your studies like you should have, but you developed incredible social, like uh, soft skills and like human capital and relationships, and you're just the best business development guy out there. So I, I think there's a little, we put too much on grades, yeah. on grades, and, and not oh enough gosh, on I'm like practical learning. Yeah, I'm an educator saying that we put too much emphasis on grades. No, it's the it's the experience and the learning that comes out of it. Right, the grade is a, a a piece of what you learn, not everything that you learn. So. Well, well, anytime you're anytime you're measuring something, you you measure it according like quality has to be defined in a certain way. Right. But does that what what is the most valuable skill that we have to cultivate in the American economy moving forward? Entrepreneurship, bar exactly. entrepreneurship, and our our schooling system is still learning how to kind of both teach and measure entrepreneurship. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's no fault of anyone's, but but that is that is the the next frontier, um, in my opinion. I agree, and, and I think if we can do that simultaneously with STEM, and and, and not neglecting the, the liberal arts either, because you know a lot of us come from that background. Um, but how do we promote those three pillars, entrepreneurship, STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and then civics, you know, the history and political science piece mm -hmm. that sure. is, is that's, that's a challenge. And, and I don't know, don't envy any educator, administrator uh, who is facing a million different challenges and then also trying to, you know, reinvigorate their curriculum to meet the challenges of the workforce, you know, today's workforce it's just changed so quickly. It has changed like in the blink of an eye. But I have the answer to that question. I'm going to hold off to that question you just. I'm had. all ears because I have it. Okay. Um, but, but you still I, want me to I'm define excited. blockchain? I want. The, yeah, I want to. I want to be able to define it. So say it and something that I can repeat to somebody else. So the three the three word answer is it's a digital distributed ledger. Okay. The longer answer is uh, we're talking about public blockchains here. These are permission permissionless public blockchains like like a Bitcoin or Ethereum that anybody can access, very open source, all the transactions in the ledger are available uh, for anybody who takes the time to look on like a block explorer or something. Uh, those are, um, in layman's terms, that is a, a ledger that allows for each computer, otherwise known as a node, each computer in the, the network to have visibility as to the truth, what is the truth of the ledger. And so as blocks are added to the chain, they're really just groups of transactions, they call them blocks, but they're groups of transactions that they're added and hashed onto the chain so that they're immutable. Every node will have the true state of the ledger um, at the point of the block being added. And so um, you can't amend previous transactions. Um, you'd have to control over 50% of a public ledger's nodes in order to um, create a falsehood to double spend. We're really solving the double spend problem because double entry accounting solves the double spend problem, but in an analog form, right? You can't spend the same dollar. I can't give both of you the same dollar simultaneously because double entry accounting has debits and credits and the, the centralized you know, accounting system won't allow that to happen. That doesn't really work in the digital format. Napster showed us that really quickly. Like mm -hmm. double spend is, an, is a big problem on the internet. Blockchain solves the devil spin problem. So the ledger will not allow me to simultaneously give 
each of you that dollar. It will put the first, whichever was the transaction that went through first that the miners ordered in the transaction first, that dollar will go to Rick and Ben won't get anything. Very interesting. Can so, the dollar go to Ben instead and Rick doesn't get anything? <laughs> good. Yeah. yeah, good point. I should have switched that around. <laughs> Uh, and we're talking, we shouldn't talk dollars here. We should talk some sort of cryptocurrency. So ETH or Bitcoin. Right. And so, you know, if we're doing this with Bitcoin, then Shiba, then, Shiba Inu. Shiba Inu, I don't know about that, but you really want the Bitcoin to come to you, right? Because right. as of today, uh, yeah, we're trading at $67,000. Yeah, all time high, Bitcoin what, 48 hours ago, 24 hours ago? Yeah. It's, it's exploded. But I want to get back to the question that you asked. How do we essentially do, do that? Catch up in terms of curriculum, in terms of the workforce, in terms of the civics, I think you got to do it together. And what I mean by that is your students who are K-12 public education have to be a part of the system that they're, they're going to live in. Um, so, for instance, we talked a little bit beforehand about um, some of the things in Tomball ISD with the, the Energy Academy. Those types of partnerships were were businesses and corporations are invested in the education of the students, you know, other than just giving a, Hey, here's a donation, or I come to, you know, um, career day, but right. alongside the kids and also the higher ed, you have to do it together because you have all the things that you need. You have a, a, an industry that's blasting off that needs workers, needs skilled labor, needs computer programmers, all of that. Um, you have, kids that need jobs, right? And they need experience. They need to know what's the difference between sitting in a classroom and sitting in an actual uh, workspace. Um, and you have all of these partners that have an interest in that, particularly your, your local community. So if you have a business, like let's just hypothetically, if I had a space and I could say, Lee, can you find me um, we'll just stick with Bitcoin because it's the most well-known. Can you find me a, a company that wants to mine Bitcoin um, we'll let them use this space as an entity, as a school system, because we have available space that we don't need. All that we ask is that, number one, they pay for their own electricity. Uh, <laughs> not joking. Uh, but, but you're serious. Yeah, I'm serious. Um, all that we ask is that you take on our students and you show them the components of how this works, right? Um, that you help us formulate the curriculum behind this. So by the time a kid enters as a freshman, He's had or she's had experiences all along the way to their senior year where they've worked alongside. They've learned things that we can't replicate in the classroom and they have a viable either certificate or understanding of how this technology works. And if you can do that, then you're producing the workers for the next generation and you're doing it in a way that's a win for everybody. Um, but it's it's hard to do because there's a lot of red tape there, and but it's not it's not impossible because we've just we've just done it right. Yeah. So I think we have to start doing that, and as opposed to talking about, hey, we need to partner with businesses. Well, what does that mean? Partner with businesses means I come ask you for can you can you you know donate ten grand for our scholarship fund, or can you come to an event, or pay for a dinner, or whatever. That's that's great. We still do that, but what I really need you to do is partner. And I'm going to give you some reciprocal value that education has never given before, right? If it's, just, hey, you tell you what, you don't have to pay the lease for use of the space that we need. Right. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll incur that cost because you're going to be working with our kids and help us create the curriculum and provide some hands-on activities. And I want my kids to have opportunities 
when you need the, I don't even know, the soldering or the computer programming, whatever, to keep the miners running or, or the logistics or the analytics that go along with that, use our kids. Yeah. Prepare them. It can be done. It's just we've got to start thinking in terms of that step. instead of you do this and then you do this. It's not linear. It, exactly. It, it will never be. Um, it's just moving too quickly. So it this is the time to do it. I just, we just need some people to come together so we, we can make it happen. Well, I'll tell you, a couple weeks ago, and I can't say which city, but a major Texas metropolitan area was considering allowing Bitcoin mining on public property using the, the city's uh, power grid. Power grid, And not only that, the city's power contract, it would be using the city's um, facility uh, at a city-owned building. And imagine if that ISD, that, that, you know, that city's ISD yes. partnered and the proceeds, you know, go to, you know, obviously pay back the public private partnership investors, mm -hmm. but then surplus of that goes to uh, the city's entrepreneurship fund or goes to, you know, the ISDs. Yes. General uh, fund, general fund or scholarship fund or something. And then those, those students are also learning some pretty valuable skills that Absolutely. can pay $30 an hour. You know, it's funny, uh, the mine, you, you bring up mining, there's a lot of mining in Texas and, I've been out to these places and talked with these the people that are working these mines. They're former blue collar folks who uh, are used to making fifteen twenty dollars an hour. They're making double that, and they have benefits. Oh yeah. And you know, if you're in a small town rural Texas and you just double your income, your cost of living is not going up. It's you know static somewhat. You know, mostly. That's a huge. That's that transforms your family life. Your family's life. Absolutely. So, so you bring up the city. Um, is it similar to like what Miami has done with the Miami coin and how they've? Well, so it's similar and different. You know, it's different in that we the city wouldn't have their own coin; they would be mining Bitcoin. Okay. Uh, but similar in that it would be a signal to the rest of the country that hey, this city is takes innovation seriously. Absolutely. And obviously, proceeds. You know, we we can't have the the proceeds from this lining pockets of some, you know, big corporation there's gotta be a bifurcation in any sure. public private partnership where some of the proceeds benefit you know, sure. the, the firefighters pension fund of that city or uh, yes. the entrepreneurship center or something, some public good. Yes, um, you know, it would. It makes me think like, if you had some type of partnership with like that, um, would you need bonds, school bonds anymore? Would you have to go ask for public debt if you mm. were making arrangements where it was a reciprocal value in place for everybody there, right? And so next time we need to build a, a school or, or a stadium or whatever, well, we have this in the general fund because of this partnership. And not only because this partnership has allowed us to do this, but it's employed our kids in our community. Uh, I think that whoever is able to get that all together first is going to hit a home run. So here's another thing on bonds. You just mentioned school bonds. Mm -hmm. It's on top of mind because I had a conversation last week with a company called Alpha Ledger, I think. They are a blockchain-based bond. Uh, uh, they, they, they issue bonds. They're not the underwriters, but you know they, they create these bond structures for cities, municipalities, school districts to create, um, uh, to increase the number of bids that they get by uh, using blockchain technology to access uh, regional mid-sized banks that typically wouldn't even have 
had a chance to, to make an offer for the, for the bond. Wow. So they're able to drive down the cost of borrowing by creating more demand for okay. the bonds and more, and more bids. So the interest rates, wow. you know, the, the city or the municipality, or whatever gets to pick from a, a larger, you know, threshold or, or, or a larger group of offers. And they still may end up going with the big, you know, sure. national Wells Fargo chase or, or, uh, whatever the typical bond underwriter is, maybe Wells Fargo and Chase aren't your normal bond underwriters, but whatever those companies are, they still may end up going with those, but you introduce a little more competition and maybe they go down by 50 basis points. Let's let's switch gears. So we're talking about uh, your journey. Did you, What did you want to be when you grew up? A ninja, cowboy? <laughs> um, yeah. I, I Baseball, baseball player. You know, my dad is a lifelong baseball coach, uh, immense respect for that sport. I, I did a very foolish thing in high school. I was a lefty pitcher <laughs> and I decided to play football instead. And those of you who are just listening to audio, I'm like a buck 70 soaking wet. <laughs> and so I should I, I could have played baseball more effectively, right? That, that's my build. Um, and no, all, you know, I wanted all my friends were playing football. I decided to play football, obviously, uh, no, no college basketball career, no, no, uh, college football career for me uh, because of that decision. So uh, no, I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be a soldier, and I kind of fulfilled that a little bit after right. I graduated college. I joined the army, went to officer candidacy school, uh, which is nothing like the core at A and M. Right? It's the core is is a premier senior military academy. Uh, you know, I've got great respect for for those that come out of the core in West Point and some of these other awesome the Citadel. Uh, but I went, to, I went the hard way. I went, did basic training, went to officer candidacy school, just like embrace the suck as we say. Uh, so I did that for several years. I still do that part-time. Very interesting that I get to marry those two things now, mm -hmm. uh, in that I am a blockchain tech scout for the 75th innovation command as an army reserve captain. Um, so I get to marry this, the blockchain passion with something that I wanted to do from when I was a kid, which was serving the military. I will say though, if anybody, if any of the listeners that were in the military, you know that DOD is able to, to throw really cool sounding titles on things. And they're really, uh, it's way less cool than it sounds. So I'm a blockchain tech scout. Really what that means is uh, I go through and I, I research technology. I'm a paper pusher. I research technological applications. Uh, for the Department of Defense, I don't do anything, you know, cool. I'm not like doing cyber, like blockchain for cyber and like hacking, you know, Russian Bitcoin mines or anything. Um, we can edit all that out to make it appear like you're way better, the blockchain yeah. is the missile, all the missile pinpoints all across the globe. <laughs> and we can we can definitely make that uh, a little bit more spicy. We, we probably should edit out the part where I said hacking a Bitcoin mine, because as you and all three of us know, that's not possible. So uh, although I do get approached sometimes by people in the um, Department of Defense industrial complex, like the subcontractor, you know, the, the defense primes, like yes. these big contractors, yeah. they're like, hey, so if if a government wanted to attack a public blockchain, how would how would we go about that? And I'm just like, it's cost prohibitive. Don't even try. Uh, I mean, at this point, unless we're talking Shibu Inu, <laughs> then they could probably disrupt, uh, you know, uh, SHIB or uh, 
Dogecoin. Dogecoin. Yeah. Man, there you go. See, that, so, that, that, those two nations of followers, man, you get hammered if you say anything bad. Uh, I know. All, they, they blast you. all the random poop coins out there. Yeah, we, uh, our industry association, you know, I run the Texas Blockchain Council. We are a big tent organization. So we obviously have folks in the association that are pretty high on those coins, but they're never going to see anything coming from me on Twitter or right. I'm not going, I'm not going to bash, you know, anything, but I'm certainly not going to promote something that I don't myself right. don't believe, in. believe in. Uh, and it's not that I don't believe in network effects and like the fact that Shiba Inu could go up and so could Doge and, uh, had the chance to talk briefly about it with, uh, Mark Cuban, uh, a couple of weeks ago at a press conference, very briefly. I mean, you know, less than a minute, uh, cause he's, hard to nail down but and he and his opinion is it's oh it's just educational you just get in you try with the ten dollars and that's fine you know people want to learn you can also buy ten dollars with a bitcoin or ether though that's right right it's in, infinitely fra fractional fractionalizable which is not a word but yeah to to a millionth of a uh, a bitcoin a satoshi um so that argument doesn't carry water for me it's like oh well, you can just buy ten dollars with a doge and you've bought a couple coins like We'll just buy ten dollars of the Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? And you know the blue chips, essentially. The blue chips, yes. The blue chips, uh, and not to say that eventually investors shouldn't diversify, but um, you know, as an industry association, big tent, but we do try to focus our energy on the blue chips. That'll do it for part one. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us for part two as well. And we'll do a full outro with our reactions to the conversation at the end of that episode. So come back and see us for part two. Thanks for tuning in.